The readings taken from Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 to 22. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. This is the word of the Lord. So prayer as we begin. Thank you, our Father, that you are a God who speaks. You spoke creation into being. You declared Jesus to be your beloved Son. And you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. 
And so we pray, our Heavenly Father, as we come to this word now, that you would help us to understand it, to respond rightly to it. And please, by the enabling of your spirit, help us to see Jesus more clearly, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, if you're anything like me, if you're going to spend some money or some time on something substantial, you'll want to ask the question, is this the real deal? Uh, You know that experience, don't you? When you go and buy a second-hand car, you're asking yourself, is this the real deal? Is this car that the salesman is telling me is the best thing since sliced bread going to break down as soon as I drive it off the forecourt? Or if you're booking a holiday and you're looking at the Airbnb pictures or you're looking through the brochure, you're thinking to yourself, is there a building site just opposite that's off camera? Or as we found out, the hotel was situated on top of a nightclub. And of course, when it comes to people, you want to know you've got the real deal as well, don't you? Uh, If you're employing someone, you uh, want to hire someone who is um, as they present themselves. And even when we're spending time with friends, we want to know that the person on the outside is the same one as on the inside. And of course, there's a whole industry that's popped up to help us find the real deal. Uh, Websites like Trustpilot and Witch uh, test products and test companies and review companies so we know that what we're giving our hard-earned cash to is the real deal. Our holidays are at all protected so that we can get our cash back if we find that we're on top of a nightclub. And even with people, uh, if we're employing people, we take references, uh, we may ask about people or nowadays go on their social media account to find out about them. But what about religion? How do we know we've got the real deal when it comes to religion? Of course, there are many, many opinions out there, aren't there? Many opinions about who God is, whether there is a God, what that God is like, and many opinions about what makes the good life, how we can find happiness uh, with or without God, Uh, if there's a judgment to come, how we might survive that judgment, how we can offer comfort in death. And of course, there is a lot of people that will throw up their hands and say there's no answers to those things. So how do we know that we've got the real deal? very easy, isn't it, with that background of doubt and uncertainty to think to ourselves, is Jesus the real deal? Especially as we see many people around us fairly happy with kind of material stuff and fairly uh, normal, uh, we find ourselves asking ourselves, have we got the real deal in Jesus? Well, our passage this morning is all about showing us that despite appearances sometimes, Jesus really is the real deal. Uh, We've started a new series in the book of Matthew, and we've picked things up uh, as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Uh, We've been looking at Matthew uh, for a few years now. We've uh, done a little bit each term, uh, and now we're coming to the final uh, moment of this gospel, where Jesus enters Jerusalem. And of course, we know that Jesus exits Jerusalem in his death. Now, normally, when you're looking at a biography of someone, their death and their final moments will just be uh, a kind of footnote on the final page. But Matthew slows things right down here to show us 
what Jesus is doing in this final week is convincing us that he really is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. See, we see in this final passage that Jesus is the real king, he is the real temple, and he is the real provider. See, there's a real surprise, isn't there, at the beginning of this passage, in Jesus' choice of transport. I don't know if you notice, he rides in uh, famously on a donkey in verse 7. Now, just consider that for a moment, because this is the only point, amazingly, we're told that Jesus takes public transport, or private transport, uh, on the donkey. And consider this, Jesus has been walking for hundreds of miles. We're told that he started right in Galilee at the north, and he has worked his way all through uh, the countryside to Jerusalem. So it's strange, isn't it, that Jesus is about a mile out of the city, and at this point he decides to get a lift on a donkey. Now, of course, Jesus is not just kind of running out of energy. It's not like he's got to the final uh, mile of the marathon and uh, run out of steam. It is a hugely symbolic act. If you see the royal carriage, you know that the queen or someone in the royal family is going to be inside. If you look up in the sky and you see Air Force One uh, flying over, you know it's uh, the president, uh, Joe Biden. And it's similar here. See, to see someone riding into the holy city, Jerusalem, on a donkey, with people praising him as he goes in, well, that is ringing bells for people at this time. See, the great King David, he rode on a donkey uh, into Jerusalem. And Solomon, you can read about this in uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, Solomon, when he was coronated king, well, how did he come into the city? Well, you guessed it, on a donkey. And so it's like Jesus here is um, borrowing the royal carriage for an afternoon and entering in to London. It is a declaration that he is a king. But actually, there's even more to this, because Jesus isn't just a king like David and Solomon. He is a much greater king. See, I don't know if you notice, in verse 4, Matthew tells us that this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion... See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, um, this uh, prophet that's spoken about here is the prophet Zechariah, and Matthew says that what Jesus is doing here has been promised centuries before. And in fact, when you look at the context of Zechariah, you'll see that actually Jesus is no ordinary king. Uh, Here's what God promises in Zechariah chapter 9, the verse before. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, uh, the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, imagine this sort of king. He's going to break the war horses. He's going to break the bow. He's going to establish peace, but not just in one region, but from the ends of the earth. So there's all sorts of discussions at the moment, isn't there, about who is going to be the next superpower. You know, is America on the way out? Is China on the way up? Is it going to be us, even, as we um, trade uh, with the world around us? Uh, 
That was a joke, by the way. It might be, it might be, sorry. <laughs> sorry, let's, let's not go there. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, who's going to be the most powerful? But actually, uh, China and US, uh, the USA look like toy soldiers, really, compared to this king. Uh, this king is going to rule all over the world. And Jesus is unashamedly confessing to be that king. Now, of course, there's a huge irony here, isn't there? Because some of us may be asking, and quite rightly, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like he's this kind of real king. I mean, first of all, he's traveling on a donkey. I mean, um, you know how someone is very powerful, don't you, by the car they drive, uh, and um, let's not go there either, but uh, (laughs) you know uh, that someone is hugely powerful when they've got multiple cars driving them. Uh, Take, for example, the USA uh, president uh, will have a motorcade, uh, uh, I forgot the word, procession, whatever, uh, motorcade. Um, And um, this is fascinating. I got really into this this week. Uh, But uh, they have, this is a diagram of who accompanies uh, the president. You'll see there's three police cars at the front. They go five minutes ahead uh, to clear the way. Uh, There's two cars behind them. One's a decoy for the president. Uh, then behind him, there's a the Secret Service. Don't really know who's in there. Uh, and then several other kind of um, fierce-looking guys in the other vans. And then right at the back, um, there's an ambulance containing uh, the president's blood, of all things. Now, what a way to travel. Um, but you get the point, don't you? This is a demonstration of the person's power. And yet it seems the complete opposite, doesn't it, with Jesus? Because rather than having multiple limousines, he's on a donkey, the most basic of transport. I mean, it's the equivalent to Joe Biden turning up in a 1980s Ford Fiesta. Now, I haven't got anything against Ford Fiestas. My family had them. They served us very well. But it's not what you expect the ruler of the world to be traveling in. But that is the whole point. See, notice how this king's described in verse 5. Your king comes to you gentle, and riding on a donkey. Uh, That word, gentle there, it's the same word that pops up in Matthew chapter 11. As Jesus says, uh, I think the verse is on the screen, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. See, this is not a king who comes with great demonstrations of power, not a king who rides a war horse over his enemies, It is a king who comes humbly, gently for his people. And of course, this act at the start of this week points to the greater act at the end of this week. See, Jesus' moment of triumph is the moment he looks most humiliated on a wooden cross. Jesus' moment of coronation is not on a, a golden throne with his enemies before him, But as he dies and breathes his last breaths, strapped to a wooden cross. And it reminds us, doesn't it, that actually Jesus is the real deal, not because he kind of plays to our uh, expectations of power and what a king should look like, but because he is God's king. He has been promised hundreds of years before, and he perfectly fulfills what has been spoken of. 
be very easy, can't it, to, to wish. I don't know if you ever wish this, that the church could look more powerful. I don't know if you've ever found yourself wishing that the kind of most famous celebrity would become a Christian. So then we could kind of take uh, the message out. But actually, the whole point is that the church does look weak because God inverts all our expectations of what power is. See, Jesus is the real deal, but he may not always look like it. And he rules with gentleness, with humility. Now, why does that matter? Well, secondly, we see here that Jesus is the real temple. Now, if um, the choice of transport is a bit of a surprise to us, well, Jesus' actions in this next part are even um, a greater surprise. Uh, Jesus enters the temple court. Um, I'm told that it's six times the size of Trafalgar Square. And he does some of the most provocative actions uh, that he's known for in verse 12. We read that Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, why does Jesus do this? It feels a bit kind of different to the description we've just heard of his gentleness. And now he's turning over things in the temple. Now, there's different views on what Jesus is doing here. Um, I guess the traditional view has been that actually people in the temple were exhorting, uh, extorting people, rather, and um, Jesus is going in to kind of stop them doing that. Um, I've got here uh, a reliable source. My uh, youngest um, gave me this yesterday, very helpfully, in God's providence. It was helpful for this sermon, my very first Bible. And I thought, I'll have a look up uh, what it says about this incident in the temple. And um, it is great uh, in lots of ways. It's well illustrated, and uh, we enjoy reading it. But um, here's what it says. Jesus went to the temple. It was like a marketplace. People were selling the things people needed to buy for the festival. Jesus could see they were paying too much. Suddenly, he became upset in the whole market. And there's a nice picture here of him tipping over the table. How dare you, he said. The temple's meant to be a place where people pray, not where people are cheated. See, that's the kind of traditional view, I guess, that um, Jesus uh, is coming in because there's some mis-selling here. But actually, when you read it carefully, there's no evidence of that. And actually, in verse, um, verse 12, you'll see that Jesus has got as much of a problem with those who are buying as those who are selling. So what's Jesus' problem here? Well, some people might say it's because they are doing something uh, unholy in a holy place. But again, that's not clear from what the text says. And the doves they're selling are for sacrifices. Uh, the money they're exchanging is so that people from all over the place could uh, come and change their cash so to give it to the temple. But I think there's a more convincing answer, and it comes as we read verse 13. See, verse 13, we're told, it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Now, if you notice there, that's in speech marks. It comes from Isaiah and Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, we see a very similar setup. See, in Jeremiah, God is speaking to a group of people, his people, who are using the temple as a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card. Here's what God says about them. We will steal and murder. 
commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, that's an idol, and follow other gods you have not known. And then come to stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. See, God hates hypocrisy. He certainly hates religious hypocrisy. And the people in Jeremiah's day thought that because they've got this great structure here, God couldn't touch them. It was like a false field over them. I guess it's the kind of equivalent of um, living crazily in the week and saying, it's okay, I'll do confession on Sunday, or it's okay on Church of England. I mean, of course God loves me. But actually, God says that he will bring time on that sort of religious hypocrisy. And as Jesus enters the temple and turns over the tables and the benches, in some way he's previewing what he will do to this temple later. He's calling time on it. He's saying, no longer. Worth just saying in passing, isn't it, that just because Jesus is gentle doesn't mean that he's passive. And just because Jesus is humble doesn't mean that he's tame. It's a very chilling picture of Jesus here, isn't it? He gives them plenty of chances, of course, but, but one day comes where he says, enough is enough. See, God won't endure his name being mistreated forever. But the wonderful thing here is that Jesus doesn't come in just to trash the temple for the sake of it. He shows us where the real temple is. I don't know if you notice, there's two bits in this passage that I think are often missed because um, I'm looking at the temple, uh, the tables and asking questions about that. But for the first time, I notice, verse 14, that something else happens. Uh, We read that the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. And you think, so why are we given that detail? Well, um, there's a bizarre story in the the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel, sorry, Uh, where um, we read uh, of David's conquest of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was on a top of a hill. Uh, It still is on top of a hill. And um, because of that, it was really secure. It was the Fort Knox of the ancient world. And um, the people were so confident of how secure they were in there, they said this to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. See, they're so confident, they say, we're going to put the blind and the lame to defend our city. But David knew a way in. He found their water supply, uh, crawled, up, uh, crawled up where the water came into the city, and conquered the city. And David, uh, for no obvious reason, declared that because they had boasted this way, the blind and the lame should not come into the house I feel a bit sorry for the blind and the lame, but um, you see the point. David wanted a reminder that actually because they are boasted, they would now be barred. And it's exactly the same words here. Jesus comes in and starts healing the blind and the lame. Why is he doing that? Well, he's showing us, isn't he, that that process is being reversed. There was a no entry sign for these people, but Jesus is breaking that down and saying, you're welcome, you're healed. There's a second surprise, though, as the children declare that he is the son of David. You know how children are. They get swept up, don't they, with all the commotion. They love a party. They start um, singing along, and they start singing Hosanna to the son of David. 
And of course, the establishment kick off. They say, have you not heard what they're saying in verse 16? And notice what Jesus replies with. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? That's a bit of a surprise response, isn't it? But those words come from Psalm 8, a song that speaks of God's creation. And God's point is that he's made creation to praise him, to bring him glory. Uh, We look at all the variety of creation, and it speaks of God's wonder. And the point is that the temple was to be the very point that that happened. God gave them a temple to be a beacon to the nations, where people of all sorts of backgrounds could come in and know the living God. And the point is, because this is being misused, Jesus is going to come in and bring what the temple should be in himself. And here we get a little preview of that, don't we? As God's name is finally praised in the place it should be. And that even those who are barred are welcomed. Reminds us, doesn't it, that actually our real temple is not found in a building or impressive structures. It is found in the Lord Jesus And I don't know about you, but it can be easy to get a bit confused by that. I mean, we're very grateful for our building, uh, but um, it does keep the rain off, and we're very thankful for that. But but it's not ultimately the way we connect with God. We connect through Jesus. I remember when I worked um, in the city for a church there, we had a, a wonderful building, but it was completely overshadowed by the huge skyscrapers around us. And it's very easy to think that all the kind of exciting stuff was happening in the big towers, But actually, it reminds us that where a group of people gather in the name of the Lord Jesus, well, that is where we can really know God. See, Jesus is the real temple. He's the real way we can connect with God, to know him. Not in a building, not in hypocritical religion. And that might just help us, because some of us may just have had our fingers burnt with things in the past. Or maybe some of us have come to churches that have not treated us as the Lord Jesus would want. And this reminds us that we can come to him and that he is gentle and welcoming. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, finally and finally and a bit shorter, uh, we um, read that, we see that Jesus is the real provider. Now, I keep saying that there's lots of surprises here, but this has got to be the surprise of all surprises, isn't it? Because in verse 19, it Jesus sees a fig tree by the road. He finds nothing on it except leaves. And then he says, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. Now we look at this episode on um, our Christianity Explore course, and it is always the week where people are scratching their heads, thinking, what is Jesus doing? It reads like he's kind of hangry. You've heard of hangry, haven't you? Hungry and angry. Doesn't get food like my kids, and then he kicks off, or like me rather. But actually, it's not random, as we might think. Whenever we get a surprising bit of the Bible here, it's important to look at the context. Because what's just happened? Well, Jesus, in some small way, has called time on the temple. And in fact, the fig tree and the temple aren't a million miles away from each other. In fact, in Jeremiah, in the chapter after the one that's quoted here, God says, when I gather them, speaking of his people... There are no grapes on the vine, 
nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. See, God's point is that the people promise so much, but when it comes to gather fruit, there's none to be found. It's the kind of pyramid investment scheme of religion. It promises much. It promises to make us rich, but actually it's empty and we'll just take our investment. But here we see that Jesus is calling time on that sort of hypocritical religion. Have a look at chapter 24, verse 2. I think it's on the screen for me. Uh, Jesus, we'll see this in a few weeks, later says about the temple, do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And a few decades later, here's a picture of what remains of the temple today. Those very stones of the temple were thrown down in the year AD 70 by the Romans. Here's an artist's impression of what that looks like. I know it's probably not accurate, but you get a sense, don't you, of the horror of the Roman siege of Jerusalem and the temple falling. Now, how are we to understand then when Jesus says in verse 21, I tell you the truth, if you have no doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you also say to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea. It just seems a bit of a random promise. But imagine for a second how it felt to be told that this temple, which has stood for a thousand years, would suddenly be destroyed. I know not all of us were old enough to remember September the 11th, 2001, but I guess those who were old enough all remember that feeling like the whole world has been tipped upside down. As we saw the towers fall, we thought, my goodness, what is the world going to be like? in the years to come. And even though for a lot of us it wasn't our nation, we still felt that sense of everything being thrown into chaos. And we worried about what would come. And there's something of that here. See, the temple was this nation's security for hundreds of years. And more than that, it was the very place they would commune with God, they would connect with him. And now Jesus is saying that actually it's going to go. You can imagine, can't you, how it felt? But here's a wonderful promise in verse 21. See, if you, uh, verse 22 rather, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. See, Jesus' point is not that we need the security of a temple or we need things uh, to connect us to God. Rather, that because of him being the true king, of him being the true temple, the one who lays down his life to bring us to God without shame, without fear, with gentleness, that now we can go to him and whatever we ask in prayer, we can find. Now, of course, people kind of abuse this slightly and sort of say, well, does that mean whatever I ask? Can I ask for a new Mercedes or something like that or a new Fiesta? Uh, But actually, it's not quite talking about that, is it? Because right at the end of this gospel, Jesus is going to send his church out to all nations. And he says this, I'm surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
And if you're like me, you will find that commission to go out very challenging. And it can feel like we're just sent out on our own. But Jesus has reminded us that he is really with us. He will answer our prayers. He is the real king who controls all of this world. He is the real temple who gives us absolute security that we can know God for ourselves without fear. And because of that, he has promised to provide for us whatever we're going through. But most of all, as we as a church share news of him with the world around us. How do we know we've got the real deal? Well, Matthew shows us, doesn't he? That Jesus is the real king, he's the real temple, and he is your real provider. We pray, our Heavenly Father, for all of us, that you would help us to see Jesus for who he is. Help us, Father, not to get our cues uh, from just what we see around us, but to help us trust like Jesus tells us to at the end here. Trust him for his leadership, his ability to connect us to you, and his ability to provide for us. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.